it was, maybe it was Jeff Gunlock um, uh, that uh, said, and I agree with him, that the Fed is the biggest cause of the wealth disparity in the country uh, because of the inflation they, they, they kick out there. You know, to think that you should have a target inflation rate of 3% is, is rather absurd uh, in my view, because um, uh, essentially give yourself about 30, 40 years and you're trying to drive the, the value of the currency down to zero. I mean, it, it, it just doesn't make any sense. It comes from a Keynesian concept where um, if people think there's a little bit of inflation, there'll be more likely to run out and buy something today uh, than, um, than to wait for a month or a year or two years uh, and buy something. So this, this idea of trying to keep the economy going. This is the How to Trade Stocks Options podcast brought to you by 10MinuteStockTrader.com, where we cover finance, stocks, options, entrepreneurship, education, and money. And here's your host, voted one of the top 100 people in finance, Christopher Ewell. Hey there, traders. Welcome back to today's How to Trade Stocks Options podcast. I have three special free gifts for you over at 10MinuteStockTrader.com. That's the Triple Stock Profits ebook you can get for free. That's a bullish power cheat sheet that you can get for free. And if that wasn't enough, at the brand new web class, How to Easily Discover Proven Backtested 100% Plus Winners, that is for free as well. You can get these three free gifts, all yours, at 10MinuteStockTrader.com the Triple Stock Profits ebook, the free web class, and the Bullish Power Cheat Sheet. And all you got to do is go to 10MinuteStockTrader.com. Markets are people. People are predictable. Outlier can show you how to track market fear and greed with artificial intelligence on over 1,300 of the largest market cap names. Visit outlier.com to learn more. That's O-V-T-L-Y-R.com. They have a free pilot program for the rest of 2021. You can get access to right now at O-V-T-L-Y-R.com. That's O-V-T-L-Y-R.com. Hey, make sure you subscribe and hit the bell so you'll be notified every time we give you more tools, tips, and tricks to help you trade faster and trade smarter every single week. Hey there, traders. Welcome back to today's How to Trade Stocks Options podcast. Today, we have a very special guest online, somebody we've had a couple of times on before, but it's been a little while. Doctor, or soon to be doctor, I should say, Mark Guthner from Rutgers School of Business in, um, in New Jersey. He's the Associate Professor of Professional Practice. Mark, this is uh, very exciting to have you on today. Thanks so much. I'm happy to be here. And um, it's nice to be in a position where I can. Um, Turn into to a new career. I've been a practitioner for about thirty years, and now taking all that stuff that I've learned uh, and did in real time and pass that knowledge on to kids. And then I also help them uh, either get into graduate school or find uh, find the job um, uh, that leads them to the career path uh, that, that they want. So some of them want to go into sales and trading. Someone wants to be analysts. Some wants to be wealth managers. And I do my best to tee them up so that they can uh, pursue their dreams. Perfect. Well, I'm really excited today. Mark reached out and he wanted to have a discussion about inflation. And so what I did is I'm like, this needs to be top priority on everyone's agenda. So I bumped our normally scheduled show. So uh, Mark, we're getting this done on Friday and this is going to go out on Monday. That, that's how fast we're going to turn this around. So Terrific. yeah. So Mark, let's let's get into it, right? We're looking at unprecedented levels of things that are going on right now. I, I saw anecdotally that the last time we had inflation at this level, the Fed funds rate, which has been at zero to 0 0.25, was at that time over 11%. And right. this is a crazy world we're living in right now. So, so I will let you tell me more about it. Well, not only that, that the last time this happened, that ET phoned home. Um, <laughs> So um, uh, the, what we're having going through is, ex is extremely predictable um, if you understand monetary and fiscal policy. Um, so what the government did basically said, go home and don't make anything and don't do anything. So production comes to a screeching halt. And then knowing that that puts huge financial strains on the people that can't go to work, um, 
they pay them a pile of money to, to go out and spend and quote unquote, keep the economy going. Uh, the guts of an economy are about, cons- uh, about production, not consumption. Consumption is the reward you get for getting up and, and producing and, and making something. Um, so of course, uh, the Keynesian economists have it all backwards. So naturally, we have this big rundown in supply of, of goods and uh, peop- because people are depleting the inventories. And, um, and so it was only a matter of time uh, before we, these supply chain problems came up um, and, um, and prices started to rise. So just think about that. Lots of money in the economy, nothing to buy or no production in the pipeline to buy. So naturally we're getting uh, much higher prices. Uh, the scary part about all of this is the government is, or I should say the Federal Reserve has uh, increased the money supply by about 40% in the last, uh, um, I guess, 24 to 28 months. So think about that. The, the money supply has grown from 1778 uh, when um, we became a country um, and in three years, we did 40% of what was done in the previous 200 and something years. That doesn't um, just seem remarkable. insignificant. <laughs> that seems yes. like quite a lot. It's, it's enormous. Uh, and uh, it's an abuse of the uh, monetary system. And it's hurting a lot of people. I mean, you think about on the, on the financial TV shows, people are cheering because it made stock prices go up. Um, and it, and it allowed some young people who never traded stocks before that all of a sudden they got a, a check from the government and uh, they immediately opened an account over there at Robinhood and uh, started whipping and driving options and everything else. And that's why we get uh, the AMC and the GameStop stories uh, and other things like that. Um, it, it, we're kind of in a, a very strange world, I would say. <laughs> I agree. I agree. And you know that during that time period, um, let's call it early spring, 2020, 2020. That was cool. Right. For, for stocks to be able to, to see the explosive moves, you know, that previously were only held by, you know, crypto assets. Right. Yeah. But now we're looking at if we just got 40% more supply of money, does that mean that my dollar should be worth 40% less? Am I reading that right? Yeah, I think that we will see an increase in the price level of 40%. Uh, the question is, is how fast and how long does it take to get there? Uh, if that's um, not is it going to take three or four years? Sorry, say again. Oh, I was just going to say, that's not insignificant. I mean, I can't imagine no. paying 40% more for goods and services. That, that hurts everybody. Yeah. Yeah, well, we, we've seen the price of cars. Used cars are yeah. oftentimes around the same price as a, um, let's say, used car that's about uh, a year old is, is going to be very near the price of a brand new car. Um, my wife works in the car business, and she tells me um, it's pretty common for people to have to pay 5000 bucks over sticker price because um, that the uh, dealerships uh, don't have any inventory. Yeah. So it's their way of sort of rationing inventory and keeping a little bit around uh, for their best customers. But everybody's paying uh, way too much uh, yeah. for cars and food. And um, we're seeing it in gasoline now. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's and, and housing prices. I think um, Zillow was saying uh, rents are up nationwide um, around 20 percent that. Um, by the way, uh, contrast with the government's figure, which is something like three or four percent, um, because they do a thing called um, owner's equivalent rent, which they take a survey. There's no reason to do that process anymore because uh, Zillow can give you um, uh, keeps track of track of these things nationwide in real time. So, um, but in any event, real estate prices have gone up. We've seen that uh, not uncommon. Uh, for a lot of places, uh, real estate to go up by 20% uh, in some of the big cities. Um, your state of Texas is doing quite well in, in the real estate um, category. Uh, so 
yeah, everything's going up and it's, um, it's going to cause a lot of stress. Uh, there's no question about it because um, I don't know anybody that's getting a 10% uh, increase in pay. I haven't met no. any of those people yet. So uh, no, households are about to get really squeezed. A 10% doesn't feel like it's going to make that difference, right? Yeah. That, that 40% money supply. A 10% is very generous, but I don't think that's going to make the difference. Yeah. So the question is, is how long do we get there? We could, we could get a, uh, you know, seven, let's say just say 10% for easy numbers. It'd take us four years to get to, to that new price level. Um, it, uh, you know, the Fed is doing a lot of talking right now about tightening. Um, but really all they're really doing is at this stage of the game, taking their um, foot off the gas pedal a little bit. There's, there's still no tightening going on. Although um, uh, board member Bullard yesterday uh, uh, mentioned that, you know, 50 basis point hike, which is sort of um, the accepted number that's going to come out and the Fed's going to do in some short order. He was he was saying that, um, you know, that doesn't mean anything in this in this kind of environment. Uh, And that was in response to yesterday's uh, CPI number where it came in seven and a half percent year over year, which is an enormous number. You said 50 basis points doesn't mean anything in this environment? Doesn't mean any, a raise in rates of 50%. He said this, not, his words, not mine. Um, that's, that's the biggest rate jump we've seen in a decade or more. Yeah. No, they've always moved by these little itty bitty yeah. moves. Um, and these are, you know, when I started uh, trading bonds uh, 30 years ago uh, as an institutional bond trader and portfolio manager, you know, interest rates, the 30-year bond was, I think, uh, about 13, 14%. And it routinely moved by wow. uh, four or five points a day. Um, and uh, so four or five percent I know points? what volatility looks like. And nobody that's in this business for the past 10 or 15 years knows what uh, true volatility in the bond market looks like. So you're saying it was around 13 to 14% and then would move uh, a figure of five percentage points? Uh, yeah, day was not uncommon. That's crazy. It was not uncommon for thirty-year bonds. Yeah, for thirty-year bonds. So, how do you uh, how was, do you run a business? It was like actually that? a very fun time to trade bonds because uh, I used to do a <laughs> lot of yield curve arbitrage. Yeah, and uh, I just uh, scrape money out of the market, sort of day in day out for my customers. How how does uh, an institution that needs to borrow do business when rates move that much? That seems crazy. Um, well, what, 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 what you got to do as a business is you lock in a long-term rate. And it's like, if you can live with the, the payments you got to make and you've got the, the EBITDA, you know, the cash flow to cover it, then, um, then you're fine. You lock in a rate. Um, you know, there's, from the standpoint of corporate finance, you want to finance your long-term assets with long-term debt um, and equity and your short-term assets like uh, inventories and receivables. Uh, with short-term debt, so if you if you line them up, um, you'll manage your um, uh, your interest rate risk uh, reasonably well. Uh, mm-hmm. So that's not that's not an enormous problem. Uh, but banks, you know, um, are going to have are, are going to have a challenge because uh, they're rich with cash and they got to figure out uh, where they're going to uh, invest it. And and banks need to invest in. Um, short-term assets because their liabilities, i.e. deposits, yeah. um, can, be, can walk out the door at a moment's notice. Uh, so um, they can't lock in any long-term rates and, and they certainly wouldn't want to in this environment where I think interest rates are going to start rising um, at a surprisingly rapid rate. Mm. So if interest rates start rising at a surprisingly rapid rate, for me as an individual, as a consumer, where am I going to be impacted with that? Because that sounds scary, right? Okay. Yeah. So that one of the things I tell all my students is, is uh, I lived through, um, at, well, I should say interest rate cycles um, are very long. They go on for 30, 40, 50 years. Uh, so we saw interest rates rise from the early 40s into 1981, 1980, right around there. Uh, so that's call that 40 years and add 40 years to that. And here we are at 2020, um, and now we're going to go on another 40-year um, 
uh, rate rising. I hope not. <laughs> well, it, it's just in the cards. The thing is, it's, it's just going to go on for a long time and it will be relentless unless something uh, remarkable happens uh, in um, the financial markets um, and the way our money is, is structured. So, you know, Bitcoin throws a monkey wrench into that uh, analysis a little bit because um, most of us don't know uh, what's going to happen. Uh, and how that's going to impact, you know, savings, payment systems, uh, how we price assets uh, going forward. It's going to have an impact, but it's unclear what that uh, impact is. Um, uh, yeah, it's too young, um, and a lot of minds need to be brought on uh, to to think about how that's going to happen. Yeah. So you know, going back to the uh, the car situation for a minute. Um, thankfully, I've not been in a position where I needed to buy a car over the last couple of years. Um, but at this point, our family has decided that we want to go buy a Tesla and that's an exciting thing. And, and around here, there's, there's lots of uh, access yeah. to, to charging points. There's a Tesla service center, 10 minutes from my house. So it doesn't seem like uh, that big of a hassle for a day-to-day car for us. Mm-hmm. And my neighbor he just bought uh, a Model S, and this is not me trying to keep up with the Joneses. He did his thing, I did my thing. That was that was funny, but uh, he just bought a Model S, and he was telling me that he was looking for used, and he found he could get a new one for less than a used one, and still get his tax credits. And I saw the exact same situation for me because I'm wow. waiting for the Model Y. Model Y is supposed to get new batteries, and so I'm mm-hmm. like, I'm I'm gonna wait for the new batteries, right? Cause yeah. I want the better batteries and I was pricing the model Y's and I'm like, I can save $5,000 versus buying a used one and I'll get the tax credits. I don't even understand what's going on right now. Like this is something's broken and what is it going to yeah. take to fix this? Right. This is an unusual environment. What, where, what is it? The Everybody, supply chain? Is it, is it, yeah. what's it going to be? Everybody's got to get up, go back to work, um, start making stuff, and um, and uh, and that kind of thing. I think a lot of people have more money to spend because they saw their stock portfolios go up. If they're a homeowner, they saw the price of their house goes up. And you know, we as Americans um, love to refinance our house, take that chunk of money, and go buy something big with it. Um, and, uh, and I think that's what it is. I think we're seeing, uh, a big, a big chunk of this wealth effect where, um, people feel more wealthy because their stock portfolios, uh, went up. I think the triple Q's doubled from the uh, COVID low or. Oh yeah. Everything did. Yeah. Even the, the spy S&P. did. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, if you were in stocks, you're, you're feeling pretty flush right now. If you're in a house, you're doing okay. Um, I think what's happened is tragic uh, government policy because about 50% um, of our uh, friends here uh, in the United States do not have stocks and real estate. Um, they're living in apartments and uh, they, uh, their incomes aren't high enough for them to accumulate assets. And so they get left behind and they're the ones um, that really um, get hurt by this inflation and um, a lot, you know, and uh, I I forget who it was, maybe it was Jeff Gunlock um, uh, that uh, said, and I agree with him, that the Fed is the biggest cause of the wealth disparity in the country uh, because of the inflation they they kick out there. You know, to think that you should have a target inflation rate of 3% is is rather absurd uh, in my view because, uh, essentially give yourself about 30, 40 years and you're trying to drive the, the value of the currency down to zero. I mean, it, it, it just doesn't make any sense. It comes from a Keynesian concept where um, if people think there's a little bit of inflation, they'll be more likely to run out and buy something today uh, than, um, than to wait for a month or a year or two years uh, and buy something. So this, this idea of trying to keep the economy going. Um, I think it's a, it's an erroneous notion. Um, and, um, but it's, it's what, uh, the people that have their hands on the controls believe. And so it's our job as people, citizens to, um, 
try to work our way around that and um, and say that's a given. So what do we do to to uh, to survive in such an environment? So how does the Fed cause inflation like that? That kind of or does the Fed cause inflation or well, I guess how does the Fed, Fed fight inflation? Well, the Fed uh, is the principal cause. The banking industry helps. Uh, but the way the, um, the uh, inflation in its proper term is the growth in the supply of money and credit. And the way they increase money um, is they buy treasury securities. They go into the marketplace. They call their fen- friendly neighborhood broker, Goldman Sachs, um, uh, Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, Wells Fargo, um, all these what are called um, primary brokers. They're the ones, there's about 22 or three of these now. Uh, that trade with the Fed. So the Fed basically um, uh, buys a treasury security from a broker and then just deposits money into their account and they create the money out of thin air. So they don't, they don't have uh, any money. They just they create uh, a liability. Uh, that's what a US dollar is. So if you look at your, pull out your wallet or purse, um, take a look at a currency. On the top, it says Federal Reserve note. A note is a loan. Um, in the case of a currency that sits in your wallet. So that's what you'll hear Powell talk about this. And he's really the first chairman that really does that talks about money as being a liability of the Federal Reserve Bank. So they issue a liability um, and, um, and then they uh, go buy an asset with it, uh, a US Treasury bond. So the supply of dollars out there increases every time they go and buy a Treasury security. Mark, can we do that? Can we make up something? Then go buy it for free and then just call it a day. Uh, I'd like to, if you can figure (laughs) it out, if you can figure it out, you know, clue me in. Oh, okay. Okay. Very interesting. Yeah. I I tell you, um, sometimes you you might sit back and say, you know, this is awful, but at the same time you kind of sit back and say, well, this is kind of cool to live through, you know, got some great stories that we could tell through it. So where, where can we go with this? Right. So you, you brought some slides. Um, yeah. I'm really curious to see what those are and, and to, to talk more about them. Okay, I'm going to share these uh, slides with, uh, with the viewers here. Um, and I want to talk about this, and I talk about this. I, this is a, um, a, a short synopsis of an article I wrote on my website called theoptionsedge.com. Um, and um, we talk about options, trading strategies, stocks, um, investment environment. So there's a lot of education, uh, educational material in there. Um, and I um, share some investment thoughts some trading thoughts with our, with our paid subscribers. Um, <clears throat> but I put up a, a fair amount of um, uh, free content as well. So this is one of the pieces that I did because I think, um, and this is, um, I teach a class in, um, asset valuation. And so uh, this is a little synopsis of what are the things I talked about in our classes. Um, And so I wanna talk about uh, why I think equities are overvalued and equities are overvalued uh, because um, I don't think the world appreciates the inflation problem yet. So my thesis- I'm gonna stop you real quick. Just, Just we're all on the same page. When you say equities- Stocks. Just stocks. Just or stop. does this include any sort of asset, like a, a home or? Yeah, um, you could, you could the, the same principles apply to a home. But for this okay. example, um, I'm just going to talk about stocks. Sure. And my, um, my surrogate for that is um, the S&P 500. Okay. Uh, and in, uh, spiders in particular. Okay. So my thesis is that U.S. equity prices don't incorporate sustained inflation in their current prices. And so we saw yesterday the CPI uh, year over year um, is up running at seven and a half percent. That's very hot. Um, I think um, uh, it'll be high single digits going forward for a while. There, there are some folks out there that are saying that um, uh, they expect it to go higher than that, low, low double digits. Um, I was listening to, to some of the financial news uh, yesterday and there's a lot of people still arguing, and I would say the consensus view at this stage is that this is transient. Um, and it's because uh, they're just pointing at um, uh, the supply chain problem um, as if that's some sort of uh, you know, a broken wheel and once you fix the wheel, 
it's going to go uh, be okay. And as I, as I talked about earlier, um, we have the supply chain problem because we stopped production um, and then inflated the money supply, gave people lots of money to spend, and they want to buy more stuff than there is stuff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's why we have shortages of everything. Um, and it's also true that, you know, um, a lot of, especially if we stop producing things in the U.S., well, where do we get the stuff we buy? We get it from overseas. And that's why you see the ports all clogged up and, and everything else. Um, so so I, I had somebody on the podcast uh, about a year ago when the whole inflation talk started and they, they explained it to me like, like you were just saying, right? Uh, once we get everybody back to work, once we get you know, all, the, all the workers in the factories and everything turned back on, then uh, this idea of inflation being transitory would, be, would hold true and everything goes, quote, back to normal. But you know, we're, we're two years deep at this point. We don't know if things are ever going to go back to quote, quote unquote, normal. Do we, do we still feel that inflation is a transitory thing? Like, uh, well, I'd say that the, the um, consensus view right now um, is yes, that it's transitory. It, it's my view that it's not. Um, Milton Friedman uh, told us that uh, inflation is everywhere and always a monetary phenomenon. So if you increase the money supply faster than goods and services, you're going to get higher prices. Um, you know, he was uh, he was a he was both a free market economist and a, um, a monetarist. And some people don't think of um, they think monetarism has been discredited. Um, the problem with monetarism is it does tell you um, if you grow the money supply, you're going to get inflation, but you don't know when because to get inflation, you need two things. Um, you need the growth in the money supply, and then you, you need people to want to get rid of the money they have. Um, um, so if they start to fear inflation, then they start uh, dumping their currencies, buying uh, real assets, and then the, then the uh, higher prices uh, begin to show up. So you need sort of the fuel to get there, and then which is the growth in the money supply. And then you need a change in attitude, which represents the match to light the inflation. Hmm. So that's the, way, that's the way I think about it. So you could have, in theory, a growth in the money supply for five years. Um, and, um, and in fact, I would say this is really what happened after the um, um, uh, financial crisis is money supply grew very fast, uh, but people were concerned. So what did they do? They hoarded money. They paid off some debts. Um, they didn't run out and spend uh, this money that was being created. And, uh, and so we didn't get uh, high inflation rates, but, um, and most of that money flew into the financial markets instead, pumping up the price of bonds and stocks uh, and people saved it. So once people turned the switch and said, I'm gonna start buying stuff now, uh, they started to drive up the, the uh, price inflation rate. Yeah, that, that, that makes sense. But it sounds like there isn't a cure for this. It sounds like we're stuck. Well, the, the cure is to stop printing money. Um, and uh, if you wanted to stop the inflation that's going to come uh, in the next few years, you would have to pull money out of the system. Um, and what would that do? You would take a lot of uh, uh, fund managers that have borrowed to the health to buy securities because you create when interest rates are super low, you encourage people to borrow and buy an asset. That's what happens in real estate. Um, the bond um, hedge fund guys, they, they play the carry trade. They borrow at one or 2%, then they go buy high yield bonds at four and five and 6% and uh, collect the difference. Um, interesting notion right now is that um, the yield on high yield bonds is less than the inflation rate. So you think about that. Even if you get your money back, you're going to lose purchasing power. But a high yield bond has a high um, um, propensity or uh, potential to default. Um, makes no sense, as you can see in my little chart here. HYG, which is the um, uh, ETF that tracks high yield bonds, only yields 4.2% right now. 
which is less than the 7.5 that uh, uh, we're experiencing right now. Um, and as you also notice here, the 10-year bond is only a 155. So um, the guy that owns a 10-year treasury bond is losing about 6% of his purchasing power every year. That's harsh. So how do we pull money out of the system? So what the Fed would then do is they would sell, what they would do is sell securities. And so <laughs> when they sell securities that um, they, get, they get their Federal Reserve notes back um, and then that shrinks the money supply. They reduce their balance sheet. Um, so they reduce it's the like number they, of the amount of currency outstanding. So let, let me try and understand. So they, they buy the security with fake money that they made. Yeah. <laughs> and then when they're done with it, they're going to sell it back to that party, call the transaction even, and then that money just, that they didn't just, exist in the first place like disappears? Yeah, it's like repaying their notes. Yeah. They're going to repay, re, you know, repay their Federal Reserve notes. Uh, they retire those securities. Huh. And uh, so they're gone. So it's the exact opposite way. But um, there's never been any uh, time in the history of the Federal Reserve um, where they have, for any sustained period of time, um, sold securities since hmm. 1913. So... Um, there's a lot of talk that they'll do that, but, um, you know, when everybody is partying with uh, cheap money, um, you take the cheap money away, uh, a lot of, uh, um, uh, dislocations are gonna, gonna happen. It's, it's almost since, since you teach at Rutgers, it's almost like the party with cheap alcohol, Yeah, <laughs> cheap tequila. They show up with cheap tequila. Once all the cheap tequila is gone, everybody leaves, right? Yeah. <laughs> so that, well, that's the old the old um, adage for the Fed. If, if you had a real investment bank, a real um, 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 central banker, uh, your job is to take the punch bowl away when the party really starts getting going. Okay. Uh, and um, and instead, they're they were spiking it more, ah. um, trying to extend uh, uh, the party into the wee hours of the morning. So do you and think so that they're kind of trapped right now? Well, I was about to say, do you think that they messed up? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, would, I think how... the policy errors um, but in the last two years have been gigantic. If you did not want to have these huge dislocations yeah. um, and you're telling people not to go to work, what the government should have done is said, you know, um, people, you're going to have to consume less. Where you're making less, so there's going to be less to consume, so consume less. They did the opposite. They said, make nothing, consume more shortages of everything. Yeah. So if they said you're going to be uh, producing less, you should consume less and that's going to keep the system in balance. So the system is really out of, out of balance. Okay. That makes sense. So, okay. so where do we go next in your slides there? So um, this was my, um, my thesis that uh, the inflation is not, um, um, incorporate into equity prices. And so I'm going to look at intrinsic value of stocks. And what is intrinsic value? It's the present value of the cash flows that go to equity holders. And what they get is they get dividends, they get share repurchases, they get asset sales. Um, that cash flow generally flows to the equity holders. Um, and uh, so I'm going to walk you through um, a five minute MBA in finance. Um, to, uh, to, to see that you're here. One of the things um, that the super low interest rates have done is convinced everybody to um, put their money in stocks. So lots of retired people, let's say you're 65 years old, most people of that age would have, let's say 30% of their money in equities, 60% in bonds, um, because they're likely to still live another 20 years. They need some growth on their money, but they need steady income to live off of. Um, because interest rates have gone to, to bubkis, um, they need higher returns. So people would sell their bonds. And so their, their portfolios look more like uh, 60, 70% stocks, 30% bonds. And of course, that's helped uh, elevate those prices. So what I want to do is just uh, take a note here. What is present value? What are these concepts? This is this in one slide. This is finance. Um, it's how do you equate a dollar in the future with a dollar today? Okay. So the present value of a, a currency today is 
um, uh, that dollar divided by the rate of interest that you could get in the marketplace. So here, there's a little example. Um, uh, what is $100 worth today? If we have to wait five years to get our hands on that dollar, um, and, um, and the going rate of interest is 5%. So what I do is I take $100 um, and uh, I divide it by 1.05%, uh, the five, one plus 5%. I compound it five times. And that tells me um, um, I should be indifferent between having $100 five years from now or having $78.35 today. I should be indifferent between those two things. So that's that's what finance is and everything. And I try to, everything that's complicated about finance when you're trying to figure out a stock, well, what is your cash flow going to be? And what is the appropriate discount rate? It's what the whole argument's all about. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why people think about the economy, business strategy, all these kind of things uh, that will generate cash. So if we're going to look at intrinsic value of a stock, we're going to get cash flows year after year after year. So you got next year, we're going to get a dividend or maybe a share repurchase. We're going to two years from now, we're going to get another cash flow. Um, Three years, we're going to get another cash flow. And that's going to go on in theory forever, right? There's no ending life of um, a corporation, no theoretical ending life for a corporation. So um, if we thought of a corporate um, equities as being sort of like a bond with a variable cash flow, that would be the present value or the intrinsic value of that stock. This is, this is the, the Warren Buffett way. Mm-hmm. So let's say we make a, an assumption that um, we know what um, the cash flow was last year, uh, paid in the last 12 months. And let's just make the assumption that the growth rate from every year here on out will be the same. It's 4% every year, year on year out. Uh, that's that you get this big, ugly, nasty, sort of long equation that goes on forever. So you get the, um, the cash, this C1 is equal to last year's cash flow plus some growth divided by one plus the appropriate discount rate. After two years, we're gonna get two years of growth. So it's gonna compound twice. We're gonna discount it twice. Um, it's going to, uh, to bring it back to today. So uh, that's a nasty calculation to deal with. But the reason why I assumed that uh, a constant annual growth rate is with some mathematical gymnastics, we can say the intrinsic value boils down to this little equation right here, which okay. is the cash flow for the past 12 years times one plus the growth rate. And then we're going to divide that by our discount rate, the rate at which we should get a fair rate of return minus the growth rate. So um, with this equation, we can figure out the price of stocks. So what do we need to do? Um, The first thing we need to do is figure out what's the appropriate discount rate on stocks. What's the appropriate rate, the rate of return we should expect to get on average year after year by holding the S&P 500. Okay. This, okay. And so example. that generally comes around nine, 10% or so as like the average, but you're saying yeah, like, what, what's the should be number, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So if we go um, and look at the last hundred years, uh, the average uh, uh, rate of return on the S&P 500 is about, you're right, about 10, a little over 10%, okay. right about there. And what I always tell my students, back of the matchbook, um, uh, the rate of return on stocks, uh, expect 10% uh, and uh, with a volatility of returns of 20%. Um, That's historically what's happened for the past uh, 100 years. I'm not going to get into volatility here too much. I just want to get at a point estimate. So um, how do we get uh, to an appropriate discount rate. So what we what I did here, and this is standard um, um, capital market theory, is if you have a stock, you're going to get some risk-free rate. So if you owned uh, treasury bills, that's the rate that you get. If you're going to step out on the yield curve, you should get some risk premium for that, mm-hmm. right? So um, what I did is I went back here to um, 19... Uh, 28, I think it starts my data set. Maybe it's 21. I forget my data set. About 19, uh, tw- yeah, 1928. 
So I looked at what was the equity risk premium. What, what is that? That's the rate of return they actually got minus the risk-free rate. So this is the premium that you would get. And the, this is a rolling 10-year average, this blue line. So you can see there's a big cycle in that. Mm -hmm. um, now, if we averaged it over 30 years and did a 30-year moving average, it's a lot more smooth and you should expect it to be that. That's the red dotted line. Okay. Um, if we averaged it over 50 years, um, it's this black line. And as it turns out over this entire time period, um, it's about 6.47%. Um, so that's so the, the rate we would need to get. In addition to the risk-free rate. Oh, okay, get, okay, okay. To get an expected return on stocks. Okay. All right. So, so really the 10% the, the or so is outperforming this number? Am I uh, that right? Well, remember, um, uh, there were periods of time when we had uh, 8, 9, 10% risk-free rate, and you should still get uh, more than that, right? On okay. your equities, a risk yeah. premium for that. So we've gone through periods of time when, when the rates of return were much higher um, than, um, than 10%. And of course, rates times when they're low, Great Depression, rates were lower. Not the 70s, the 70s were a tough time period. The Dow Jones Industrial Average um, did not change in price from 1970 to 1980. Uh, your total rate of return for 10 years was zero. Whoa, never thought um, of that. There were two huge swoons. One, I think it was 73, where it went down about 50, 55% um, uh, in a matter of a month. And I remember that year because um, as, a young, as a young boy, teenager, um, um, that uh, I used to talk stocks with my dad. And when I'd drive, he'd have me read the newspaper and look up stock prices for him. Um, and uh, he, he got clobbered that, you know, uh, in that time period, as a lot of people did. Warren Buffett got, got you know, taken to the woodshed. Mm -hmm. uh, if you go look at the old returns of Berkshire Hathaway, they got clobbered in, I think it was 72 or three, came roaring back in, you know, 74, 75. And then there was another big dip, I think it was in 77, um, and then it came back. So um, a lot of volatility in that, um, in that uh, decade, but uh, no net progress. Hmm. Um, so in any event, what I wanted to know was what is the equity risk premium on average? So it's about six and a half percent looking back. So if you take okay. some risk-free asset plus a risk premium, what should we expect to make going forward over the next, you know, five or 10 years on a per annum basis? And that's about um, six point, uh, call it nine percent. All right. So mm -hmm. now I'm going to we I'm going to just pop all these numbers, uh, some numbers into this um, into this formula. I went and looked up uh, the average uh, dividend growth rate in spiders SPY since 1990. That was 5.62%. So, so I'm going to make the proposition that let's just assume dividends grow at the same rate going forward as a first step. What it did for the past um, 30 years, let's just assume it's going to continue at that pace. Uh, so the dividends paid over the last 12 months was $5.72. Um, I got my discount rate of 6.87. Um, and my investment time period is forever. Sure. So I just put the numbers in that um, formula and I get um, a fair price evaluation of spiders as 483 bucks. Well, that's below where we're at now. Oh, that's a little above where we are right now. No, we're at 443 at the moment. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I said it backwards. Yeah. Yep. Sorry. Yeah. So when I first did this and posted my article on the website, they were very close to the same thing. In fact, I was shocked how close they were. Yeah, because the high was roughly around that point earlier this yeah. year. Right. Yeah. So I wrote this article in, in I think, January 1st or 2nd, sort of like, uh, you know, here's what you can look forward to to the year ahead. Um, so it's about uh, 440 bucks. So um, so number of potential conclusions you, you can make. You could say stocks are underpriced by 7.4%. Mm -hmm. 
Mm -hmm. um, we could say that investors are underestimating growth rates uh, by nine basis points a year. Um, we could assume that the discount rate was maybe um, um, too high by um, nine basis points. Or maybe uh, investors are assuming that the dividend rate um, going forward uh, would be uh, is uh, 39 cents less per share okay. than what this model would predict. So there's a little bit of wiggle because we're estimating every every number that goes into the equation we have to estimate. So but it, this is uh, pretty, pretty good. It tells us um, it gives us a framework to start thinking about um, what it should be priced. Mm -hmm. The second thing we should think about um, is uh, the risk-free rate. What is a fair rate of return for the risk-free rate? So if your inflation rate is 7.5% and you're facing an income tax rate of 25%, um, then um, what would be a fair yield on treasury bills? Well, the way we do that is we take the inflation rate, we divide it by one minus the uh, income tax rate, um, and uh, we get a rate of return of 10%. If I was an individual investor and I wanted to get a, um, a, a zero real rate of return on my money, I would need to be earning 10% on my money right now. No way. Yeah. That's like impossible. <laughs> hence, hence people not running, but diving into Bitcoin. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So the uh, this this is one of the things that from a um, a game theory standpoint is the Fed has to do something here. Um, otherwise, um, they're they're essentially accelerating this move into some other currency. Hmm. Um, I just saw a new um, company, and what they do is they print um, currency currency bills. And they nanoparticleize gold and they spray it into the paper. Oh, that's cool. So you now can use a paper, a piece of paper that represents a certain amount of gold oh, as a currency. Kind of like the uh, $20 gold eagle or whatever it's called. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But this is paper money now. Huh. This is not, this is not a coin. Yeah. I just stumbled upon that. Um, uh, uh, and I thought, well, that's sort of an interesting idea. They figured out how to nanoize gold and then I infuse it into paper. Mm -hmm. And uh, so the paper itself actually has gold in it. Um, and so who knows? Maybe we go back to a gold standard. Um, I, mean, I, I don't know. At this point, it sounds like we need to do something. <laughs> yeah. So um, but now I'm, I'm not um, I am not predicting that rates are going to 10 percent in the next year, two or three or four or whatever. I'm not predicting that. Um, I think there's still gonna be what's called financial repression. I lend okay. the government a dollar and they're gonna give me back 95 cents on the dollar in terms of purchasing power. Uh, I'm gonna lose purchasing power. So of course, if I had to get that 10%, now the rate of return I would need on stocks to get a fair rate of return is 16%. Now, if you flip that upside down, that represents a price to earnings ratio of about six. Huh. Price to earnings ratio of stocks right now, uh, looking backwards, last 12 months is like 32 or three. Right. Looking forward, it's about 21. So that would imply you know, a fair sell-off. Now, again, I am not, I am not predicting rates going up to 10%. This is, this is sort of a little bit of an exercise on um, what is possible. Um, so what, there's another way to look at this and, and, and we'll uh, highlight the sensitivity of stocks to interest rates when interest rates are so super low. Again, our inflation rate's three and a half percent. But if we looked back since the year 2000, the average inflation rate has been two and a quarter percent. If we do the same analysis and say two and a quarter divided by one minus the tax rate, that means a fair rate of return on treasury bills would be 3%. So let's say that's a, that I believe is a very conservative number. I can see um, treasury bills rising from where they are now, which I think is about 25 or 30 basis points to 3%. 
that's far lower than the historic average for the past hundred years. Um, but that's a possibility. And so that's that not even close me. to the 10% we were just talking about a minute ago. Yeah. 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 So it's like, okay, let's, t- let's not lose our head here. Let's not, uh, you know, let's not uh, take a, take a look over the ledge. Um, I still think we're going to, like I said, have financial repression. I don't think people are, what would drive rates to 10% is if everybody was convinced um, inflation was going to be seven and a half, eight, nine forever. Then it would, then it would like, okay, people would say, I'm going to go borrow as much as I can and yeah. go buy stuff yeah. um, and take advantage of that inflation. And that's partially what's what happens in the real estate market. Well, hang right? on, hang on. If they did that, would that be somewhat of a similar situation as to the Fed buying uh, buying these treasuries with uh, with non-existent money, right? Yeah, if the, sort of. Sort, sort of, of yeah. Go. I can see that parallel. Yeah. So, um, so corporations and brokers and stuff, uh, banks would be able to do this far easier than you and I. I don't know about you, but if you go to a bank and said, like, I have a personal loan, they'll probably charge you 7 or 8%. Um, I don't know. I, I've never walked in and said, Hey, give me, give me a personal loan. <laughs> Thankfully. Yeah. So uh, if, well, if they were willing to, uh, to, if they thought you were good credit, they would probably mm. charge you seven or 8%. Um, uh, that's probably around what you would pay for um, a second mortgage perhaps. And that's uh, an unsecured loan, right? So that's going to have a, a, a initially higher rate than, yeah than a mortgage or an auto loan, right? And if you think about the, the classic unsecured loan is the credit card, right? Right. Um, and so they charge anywhere from nine and a quarter to I've seen as high as 48%. Cool. Um, so um, in any event, uh, let's, uh, let's step away from that for a second. So now what I'm going to do is I'm going to use 9.47% as my appropriate rate of return on stocks. So all I'm okay. going to do is change that number. The, the fair value of stocks falls from 483 to 157. That's not a little bit. That's a lot. That's, that's a huge amount. Yeah. That's two thirds, basically. Yeah. It's a clobber. So you think about that. Rates change, but the economy still kind of moves along okay. You don't need a market you don't need an economic dislocation for this to happen. What I don't know, what I don't know is that if inflation is higher, maybe this growth rate is higher. Maybe that turns out to be seven or 8%, right? Um, because if you think about, if, if I'm a business and I can hold my margins constant, which a lot of businesses are gonna have a hard time doing with inflation moving higher. Uh, but if my revenue goes up, by 10% uh, and I'm holding my margins constant, my free cash flow is going to go up by about 10%. So that's the thing I don't know. So what I surmised was maybe rates go up to something like set, the growth rate increases to something like seven or 8%. So now we're talking about a potential downside range of 250 bucks to 420 bucks. I realize that's that's a, a wide window, but yeah. I have no idea at this stage. I don't have a good way to model um, what uh, corporate earnings and cash flows are going to look like um, as um, the um, inflation rate stays high. Um, as a uh, software companies for example, should not be very highly um, um, impacted. The reason why is that they've made their product and their cost of goods sold is essentially zero. You just copy the software. Right, right. Right. Or if you're a cloud company or something like that, um, what do you pay? Well, you're going to have to pay a little bit more for electricity or something like that. So those kinds of businesses are likely to be somewhat immune. Um, but you think about a car company, let's say you, you bought a, you, a car company, makes a car for 25 grand and then sells it for 30. So they make $5,000 profit on the car. Sure. And then let's say they um, pay a tax on that. Um, and so that reduces their after tax uh, cash flow to 3,750 bucks. 
Now, what does it cost to go make a new car? Well, that $25,000 car now costs 10% more. So the, your new cost of goods sold is 27,500. And so you don't get to keep that 375, 3,750 bucks. You got to roll 2,500 bucks back into your old inventory. Right. So you get a small bit of cash flow. So um, manufacturing companies are really hurt hard in an inflationary environment uh, because they make profit and then they've got to go out and buy raw materials at higher prices. They don't get to pay out their profits to, uh, to shareholders uh, in as large an extent. So there's going to be a mixed bag. I think those that if you're going to invest, um, think in those terms, look at companies that, um, you know, tech oriented, um, that uh, have really low cost of goods sold. And, you know, software is the first one that comes to mind. Um, others, um, you just got to look around uh, for doing that. You know, mm -hmm. there are going to be, there's still going to be good stocks that are not overpriced. I just uh, wrote an article on Goldman Sachs. They're trading at about seven times trailing earnings um, and about 10 times forward looking earnings. Perfectly good stock to buy in this environment um, because, uh, you know, they're, they're um, preeminent traders and they're going to make more money in volatile markets. So I expect them uh, to keep up. Um, who do I think is going to get hurt the most? Probably your Kathy Wood style um, uh, companies that are not going to turn a profit uh, for 10 years yeah. or five years uh, because you've got those cash flows way out in the future um, and they're very uncertain cash flows um, and uh, you're discounting those back today at a higher rate. So um, uh, those are the kind of stocks that I think um, are the most uh, vulnerable uh, in an environment in which uh, inflation is sticky and stays high uh -huh. and not uh, and not trans transient. Right. So, so that what... wraps up my whole little talk um, uh, on this little thing. So my potential conclusion is I don't think at current prices, investors are thinking about and including a persistent high inflation in uh, going forward. I don't think uh, treasury bills reflect the possibility that fixed income investors may someday demand a reasonable rate of return. You know, stop ripping me off. I mean, if I, if I had my money sitting in a bank um, and, uh, or a money market account, um, I would be thinking long and hard about putting some of it in Bitcoin. Um, and then some in some really cheap stocks, like I just mentioned, uh, Goldman Sachs. Uh, but there are other stocks out there that trade at single digit price earnings ratios um, that I think come through this kind of tough time. Uh, uh, OK. And still an investor can make a buck. Um, but I think the um, there's going to be a huge game of uh, uh, people trying to figure out uh, that the super hyper growth stocks um, that did so well, particularly from the COVID bottom uh, to today, are the ones that are going to get the hurt the worst. Mm, um, yeah. You know, we got some examples of that. Peloton is yeah. not making the, the transition. Um, they've been haven't been able to make uh, they've super hyper growth, but can't get the cash flow out of it. Um, maybe with new management, they can. Uh, time will tell, but look at Zoom. Are you on Zoom? Zoom stock is down a lot because their growth rate is going to bupkis. Mm -hmm. um, they, if if you needed Zoom services, you have them. So right. how do they get? How do they grow revenue from here? Um, at the margin, some people will be canceling because they'll have to go back to the office, um, and uh, and stuff like that. So um, and so these stocks are down a lot. Yeah, um, that uh, that did so well. Um, uh, during the super growth, uh, super growth period. So, so, so Mark, what's our, what's our takeaway here, right? What, what can we do defensively or offensively to work with what we're given, right? We can't control the external environment, but what right. can we do in the short term and maybe medium term yeah. to, so, to, to help ourselves? 
So what, what I think you do is I think you focus on value stocks. And, um, you know, growth stocks have basically been the winner in the last four or five years in a big mm-hmm. way. Interestingly, if you go back 100 years, value stocks have outperformed growth stocks. Now, real fairly quick, steadily. When, when you say value stocks, uh, you mean like the blue chips, like the, the grandfather stocks, or do you mean something else? Yeah, value stocks, they tend not to grow very fast. They're mature companies, but they have some kind of um, um, competitive advantage. So you think of a post cereal um, or, or Kellogg's cereal. We're all eating cereal. We're not eating more cereal, but we're all going to eat some cereal. Um, kids are going to eat the cereal. And um, so they got a good steady business and they're just going to pass through the higher um, costs of um, rice and wheat and stuff, uh, oats uh, to their customers. Uh, companies like Procter & Gamble, um, you know, we're going to buy their products forever. The question is whether or not you can get the stock, you know, kind of yeah. cheap enough because it doesn't grow very fast, but it's got a super low uh, cost of capital. Right. Uh, but value stocks are those that um, are not going to be disrupted. Um uh, in some way uh, going forward. And they trade at, in my mind, in this kind of environment, price to earnings multiple of, I don't know, 12 or less. Um, is, is So a company that's got competitive advantage, um, not going to get disrupted and put out of business, um, is going to be around 20, 30, 40 years from now. Um, you know, Berkshire Hathaway, fine. Um, got, it's filled with lots of good businesses that throw off lots of cash um, and uh, it's reasonably priced. Uh, so those are the things that uh, you want to be in. Um, you might want to start thinking about writing some call options against your stock positions, mm. um, get a, to build a little uh, income. Yeah. And those, those provide, uh, you know, a mild hedge, you know, if you're protected for two or three point. Um, you know, three, four, five percent down move um, if you sell, depending upon whether you're at the money or out of the money. Sure. Um, that's one way um, to hedge yourself a little bit. Um, aggressive people might want to buy a put spread, um, might want to buy puts outright. I, on our website, we, it's an extremely rare day that we um, recommend buying options outright. Uh, because we want to manage manage that time decay mm-hmm. on um, on our uh, on our options positions, so we tend to like to do spreads uh, so that we have an option that's losing time value um, uh, at the same rate as uh, and and we're short that as as the one that we're long. Right. Um, so we tend to like to use um, uh, spreads to t- manage that. Uh, Time period. We do a lot of fair, and it's uh, Mike, my um, my partner, Mike Co. Um, one of his favorite structures are diagonals, where you buy a long-term option um, and you sell a short-term option against it. Um, and that short-term option tends to decay faster than the long-term option. So you might, over the first month or two of that um, um, uh, trading position, not have any. Uh, time value loss in your in your option. So uh, he likes those kind of structures, and uh, they they require some management. So mm-hmm. it's just not a a buy and put them away or uh, situation. Once that shorter option uh, is going to come due, you've got to decide: Do you want to close the position, sell another short dated option, let the long dated option ride? Um, you've got other decisions to make after you make that first um, after you make that first. Uh, uh, decision. Right. Well, I'll tell you what, this has been uh, insightful, enlightening, but uh, not exciting. I'm pleased to see you don't have too much sweat coming down off your brow. Um, well, I, I, I keep a little napkin right here because I, uh, I mean, my forehead's shiny enough already. I don't need any, any extra yeah. of that. T- tell me <laughs> about that. So, um, <laughs> Um, so, but but what I what I really want to um, um, share with people is that um, you know equities are fully priced, and so don't look for equities to be your salvation uh, in general. 
um, you're, we're going to go into a, a period now where you've got to be really a good stock picker. Just buying the index fund, which is kind of interesting. Um, I think something like 55 to 60% of all money invested in the equity markets now are in index funds of one kind or another. Um, the people that are going to win are the ones that um, do their uh, individual security analysis and focus on uh, low price stocks um, that, uh, and what I mean by low price, low PE stocks, value stocks that have a competitive advantage. Um, I think that's the way you navigate your, yourself through that you get a rate of return that um, compensates you for risk and the inflation that's uh, in the economy right now. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, this has been great. I, I really appreciate you uh, taking the time out of your busy day and, uh, you know, taking time out of your coursework there to, to come and hang with us. So thank you so much for that. My pleasure. And we want to make sure that everybody goes, checks out the article and uh, theoptionsedge.com. That starts with theoptionsedge.com. The article that Mark was mentioning is going to be linked down below, and that'll take you straight over to his website. So Mark, thanks so much for coming on and, and having this discussion today. I'm, I'm really glad you did. This is great timing. And um, yeah, hopefully we can all make it through this together with as little damage as possible. Yeah. Great to see you again, Chris. Yeah, you as well. Well, thank you for coming on and thank you guys for tuning in to today's How to Trade Stocks and Options podcast. Make sure you like, subscribe, and enable notifications. That way you never miss any of the tools, tips, and tricks, tricks that we upload every single week to help you trade faster and trade smarter. And I'll see you on the next episode. Okay, so what'd you think? That was pretty incredible, right? I have three special free gifts for you over at 10minutestocktrader.com. That's the Triple Stock Profits ebook you can get for free. That's a bullish power cheat sheet that you can get for free. And if that wasn't enough, at the brand new web class, how to easily discover proven backtested 100% plus winners, that is for free as well. You can get these three free gifts, all yours at 10minutestocktrader.com. The Triple Stock Profits ebook, the free web class, and the bullish power cheat sheet. And all you gotta do is go to 10minutestocktrader.com. Hey, if you like this video, let me know by leaving me a like below and then subscribe and share it with somebody you think could use it as well. Be sure to comment below with your biggest takeaway from this episode and any suggestions you have for future episodes. And finally, make sure you watch these other videos to help you trade faster and trade smarter, and I'll see you on the next episode.